Good morning. It is wonderful to be back with you again, and it is a wonderful privilege to share the scriptures with you. Now, I must just tell you, it's, it sounds very loud. Is it loud for you? It sounds very loud. I must tell you uh, something that happened uh, this morning. On the way to church, we were in the bus, and uh, we said, let's pray for church this morning. And um, so my youngest daughter, she's three years old, she said, she prayed this, she said, I pray Jesus that daddy will enjoy and have fun preaching. And uh, I thought that was very important and very clever of her to pick up. Because uh, this morning, my wife Claire said to me, you know, sometimes when you preach, you look very angry. And um, on Friday night, we had CG together. Chris and Eric led us in a brilliant time of CG together. But during the time of worship, Graham took a photo, and he sent it to me. And I thought, I looked like I was in the dentist's chair. I looked like the dentist was doing some operation on me. I looked so serious, but actually I was enjoying it. And so I want you to know, sometimes I can get serious. Sometimes I can look very intense, but I'm actually having fun. So I'm going to try and smile some more. I'm going to try and speak slowly. If I look like I'm not having fun, I am having fun. And I hope you have fun as well. Okay? So Jesus, help us to all have fun this morning. Uh, This morning we are in week two of this series called The Church That Jesus Is Building. And we're looking at some of the foundational truths that the Bible tells us these are the, this is the way that Jesus builds his church. And so we're asking the questions is, what does it mean to be the church? How does God go about building his church? And so as a family, we're looking at these foundational truths in Scripture about how Jesus goes about building his church. And as a church, we've gone through a lot of transition in the last two years. Uh, changed venues where we've met on Sundays. Our offices changed. There's been staff changes. Tobin and Christina, who planted this church, had to go back to America. So many transitions and changes. And in a way, we are taking these four weeks to lift our eyes or to fix our eyes on something deeper than merely who's leading this church. We're fixing our eyes on Jesus and say, what does it mean for Jesus to lead his church and to build his church? Now, last week I said that the implications of these messages are far more communal than individualistic. The implication of these sermons isn't, this is how it affects my going to work tomorrow. These messages are intended to speak to us as a gospel family. What does it mean to be part of this church? What does it mean to be part of Watermark? And if you are new to Watermark, or you're looking in, or maybe you're not even sure about Jesus and the Bible, this series is designed to help us think about the question, what would it look like if I were to be part of a church family like this? And so last Sunday, we looked at Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those that build it labor in vain. Unless God is watching over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And we looked at the fact that how the church isn't just a gathering of gifted individuals who try their best. The church is something that God is at work at. Unless Jesus is front and central of the church, all our best efforts are going to be in vain. Now this morning, let's consider this passage that was read to us. Isaiah 66 verse 1 and 2. This is what God says. Thus says the Lord, the heavens are my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? 
All these things my hand has made, says the Lord. And so they came to be. But this is the one that I will look to. Those who are humble and contrite and tremble at my word. Four things we're going to learn about God this morning. We're going to learn about God and his church. God and his favor or his blessing. God and his word. And then the word that rescues and redeems. Okay? So that's where we're going to go. So let's consider the context. The book of Isaiah is written around 700 BC. And it's written uh, prophetically to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel have lost their way a little bit. And they're about to be taken into exile into Babylon. God has warned them because they're not listening to him. They're not taking his word seriously. That God is going to send the Babylonians and he's gonna, they're going to be a tool in God's hand to discipline his people. And so it happens. But Isaiah writes and he says, you'll be in Babylon, not forever, for a certain length of time. And then God will restore you. He'll bring you back from exile, back to Jerusalem. And he writes to this uh, time when they're going to come back. And uh, so once again, they've come back to the promised land. And it would be just like they went the first time. It would be back home again. And one of the first things that they were to do when they get back home is to rebuild the temple. Remember, Solomon built this magnificent temple. The glory of God was there. The presence of God was there. And so when the Babylonians came, they pulled down the temple, destroyed it. And one of the first things that Israel has to do is to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so they do. And it's hard work. There's some disruptions. There's some uh, persecution. But eventually they rebuild the temple. And it's an amazing achievement. It's a stunning achievement. God's house has been rebuilt. And uh, and God's presence, they're hoping, is going to dwell in his temple again. And so the temple is finally constructed. The priests are ready. The Holy of Holies is restored. The altar where you bring your worship and your sacrifices constructed. Everyone is excited. Everyone is getting ready. God's house has been rebuilt. And so the people are thinking, we've done it. We've achieved this amazing thing. What could possibly go wrong now? And look at what God says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? All these things my hands have made. And so they came to be. First thing, God and his church. Notice this, the people of God are anticipating this amazing day. Having rebuilt God's house, they were very happy and very proud of themselves. The center of worship, the center of Israel had been torn down, and they were the ones to rebuild it. They were so proud of themselves. And yet God says, what is the house that you think you can build for me? Don't you realize that every single thing in the whole universe is as a result of my hands, says God. In other words, God is saying, you're feeling very confident and proud of yourselves because you think by your own brilliance, your own dedication, your own hard work, you built a magnificent place for me. As if I, God, am now indebted to your genius, your dedication. But don't you realize there is not one dot in all creation which is beyond my sovereign hand and outside of my realm. And the people of God were thinking, finally, 
God will be at rest. For the last 70 years, we've been in Babylon, and his house has been torn down. And God must be very anxious because the temple is in ruins, and, and God, he must be restless, and God must be very anxious. But finally, God can be at rest because we've built him a house. Thank goodness God has us on his side. Isn't God so fortunate that we are on his team and have built him his house? God can finally be at rest. And yet God says, the whole universe is my throne. All these things my hand has made. What is the house you'd build for me? The place of my rest. And just think of the imagery, the expansiveness of the cosmos, the hundreds of billions of light years of space. As creation, as human beings, we haven't even found the end of the universe. It's ever expanding. Hundreds of billions of light years of space. And God says, not even all of that is enough to fill my house. That is merely a throne, a chair for me to sit on. And the whole earth with billions of people in it, what is that? It's merely a footstool. And so earlier in Isaiah 40, God says the same thing. He says, lift your eyes to the starry host. Who created all of these? Who brings each one of them out by number? I call them each by name. By the greatness of my might, and because I am strong in power, not one star is missing. And so the question God asks is, Israel, what kind of God do you think I am that I need you to build a house for me? If the sovereign God of the Bible truly is the maker of heaven and earth, as the Bible says, the one who brought into being every galaxy and every star and every solar system, the one who knows each and every creature in the ocean depths, the ones we haven't even discovered. If God is the one who knows the answers to every single mystery, like what is dark matter? Where did life really originate? And even questions we haven't even thought of yet. God already knows the answers. If this is even remotely true, why does Israel think they have done God a great favor by building him a house as if God needed their help? You see, they thought their relationship with God was transactional. They do something for God, and then God will do something for them. If they are good to God, God will be, back, will be good back to them. And actually, if we think about it, that's the way that almost all of us approach the gods in our life. Whether you are religious or whether you're secular, whether you believe in the God of the Bible or, or not, we all have these gods that we hope in and trust in. And we think that if we are good to them, they will pay us back, expect something in the turn, whether it's the God of the Bible or the universe or karma. We have this expectation of this transaction between us and these gods. And in, in the book of Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul notices this. Remember, Paul is walking around Athens. It's a very intellectual city. And he walks across uh, an idol, a kind of stone that has written on it to the unknown God. And what probably happened was that somebody in Athens, maybe they were sick and they got healed miraculously. Or maybe a business deal went well and they thought, God has been good to us. I better be good back to God. Or maybe their child was sick and they were hoping that God would be good to them or look favorably upon them. And so they thought, if I make this idol for God, if I build this temple for God, whoever that God is, then maybe he will be good back to me. And so he builds this temple and he writes, I don't know who you are, but to the unknown God, please look upon me favorably. Be good to my business, good to my family. And Paul writes this, he says, 
he walks around and he says, what you worship is unknown. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about this God. The God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though this God needed anything. Since this God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And Paul is saying to these Athenians, he's saying, what kind of God do you serve if you think that he needs you and and the work of your hands? Don't you realize there's one true God and he is sovereign over everything, including his church? And friends, what Paul says to these philosophers is the exact same things that God says to the people of of Israel. And it's the same thing that God says to us, Watermark. He says they were proud of the fact that they were the ones to rebuild and establish God's presence. God says, don't you realize my hands are the ones that bring this all about? And so, Watermark, I want to say to you that I consider it the hugest privilege in the world to be a part of this family. For Claire and I and our girls, we just consider it such a wonderful privilege. We have not had the privilege of meeting Tobin and Christina, the couple that did a fantastic job in planting this church, founding this church, building it up to be a strong and solid church. I hope to get to meet them one day. And I'm so grateful for the elders and the staff that we get to work with. It really is. This is a fantastic church. And, and it is a huge privilege for us to be a part of it. And uh, I pray that for years to come, we as a church will continue to be fruitful. I pray that God will bless us. I pray that God will look upon us with favor. I pray that maybe in years to come, we might even get to plant churches and and we'll be a blessing to other churches in Asia and in Hong Kong. But let us remember this. Watermark, let us never become so proud as to think that we have done God a great favor. As if God is indebted to our hard, hard work. For he himself gives to life, to mankind, life and breath and everything. What is the house that we can build for him? All these things are a work of his hand. And because of his grace, he brings them into being. Okay? The sovereign God and his church. Secondly, God and his favor. Well, the favor of God. The favor of God. Now, look what happens in verse 2. If you've got your bulletin there or your Bible, look at verse 2. God says, all these things my hand has made, and so they came to be. And then he says, And this is the one that I will look to, he who is humble and contrite in spirit. So God has just clarified who the power behind the throne is, right? God has just clarified that he is sovereign. He is the one that brings all things into being. He is God and there is no one else like him. Everything is in his hands. He is the one who sent them into exile, and he is the one who's going to bring them back from exile. And he is the one who's been at work building his church. So here's the question. If God is sovereign, if everything is in his hands, how do we know whether God is going to bless our efforts as a church? I mean, we get to work hard. We're going to... uh, be hospitable, we're going to do everything we can, but ultimately the future of Watermark Church is in God's hands, not in the elders' hands. We've got to be faithful, but ultimately our future is in God's hands. So how do we know whether God is going to bless us? How do we know whether God is going to be favorable towards us, or whether God is just going to ask us just to work hard year in and year out? Well, verse 2 tells us, what does he say? 
this is the one I will look to. Or another translation says, this is the one I will esteem. This is the one I will be favorable to. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit. Friends, I hope you know that God is not in the least bit interested in the size of our church. Do you know that? God is not in the least bit interested in how big or small, how trendy, how popular it is, whether our worship team is um, writing songs that are on iTunes every week, whether the preacher's cool or not cool. Those things don't bother God in the least. Sometimes, let me say this, in South Africa, where we've come from, uh, the, the churches around there often look at big churches, popular churches, and you think, wow, they're doing something right. They must be doing something right. They are big and, and they're growing. They must be doing something right. Not at all. But sometimes in Cape Town, the city we come from, we look at small churches and we think they must be doing right. Because if they're big, they've sold out. They're just trying to be cool and relevant. The small churches, they're the ones that are really doing it right. Friends, God doesn't care at all whether your church is big or small, how popular or how cool it is. Those things mean nothing. What does God look to you? What pleases God? What impresses Him? What does God say? This is the one that I will esteem. This is the one that I will look to with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit. Those who are not enamored with themselves, but are enamored with who God is. And that's why, friends, confession and repentance is such an important discipline in the life of the church. It should be part of our daily lives. As we read our Bibles in the morning, we should read what's in God's Word, and we should, we should say, God, I don't see that in my own life. I confess that I'm sorry. Won't you forgive me? We should acknowledge the difference between who God is and our own lives. It's so important to humble ourselves daily before God because God says, this is the one that I will look to. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit. You see, the Israelites, they thought, we've built the, the temple. It looks amazing. And the priests have been down to Causeway Bay, and they've got their Gucci outfits, and the band is playing indie rock and Hebrew jazz, and, and everything's looking wonderful, and the, the furnaces are beautiful, and they think, God must be so pleased with us. And God says, this is the one I will look to. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit. Barry Webb said it like this. He said, the physical restoration of the temple was not enough. Unless there was spiritual renewal, the people would simply repeat the sins of the past. Isaiah was calling God's people away from the ugly distortion of true faith, which inevitably reasserts itself where there's no heartfelt contrition before him. Where heartfelt contrition is lacking, Worship in whatever building is no better than pagan superstition. Watermark, I want to ask us that as we go into this season, let us not buy the lie that if we can just get this right, we can just get that right, if we can just get the preacher to wear decent clothes, or we can just get the coffee right, or the, the good chocolate brownie in the welcome pack, then we're gonna, our church is going to be fine. Those things mean nothing to King Jesus. Watermark, the one thing that we really need, the only thing that is a church we really need, you cannot buy with all the gold in the world. You cannot secure it with all the connections in the world, all the networks. 
You cannot earn it with all the hard work in the world. The one thing we need, we need the favor of God. We need the presence of God. We need the life of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of God and at work in our lives. And how does God pour his favor on us? This is the one I will look to. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit. God who blesses us with his favor. May this be true of us. May God look upon us favorably because we are those who are humble and contrite. Now, thirdly, so God and his church, God and his favor, God and his word. Now, look again at your bulletins. Look at the second half of verse 2. What does God say there? He says, this is the one that I will look to, those who are humble. Oh, let me ask you this question before we get there, sorry. What does this humility and contrition look like? How does God measure humility? How does God know whether we are really humble before him or whether we are just, you know, putting on a facade, whether maybe we are just saying the right things to try and pretend we're humble, we, that we act humble? How do we know whether in our heart of hearts we are dependent on God or we are self-reliant? Well, look at what verse 2 says. It says, this is the one I will look to, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and, what does it say? Trembles at my word. Friends, one of the most important things for us to realize is that our attitude towards God's word in many ways is a reflection of our attitude towards God himself. The way that God measures our humility towards him is in our humility towards God's word. Do we sit over God's word in judgment of it as if we have the final authority as to what God's word say? Or do we let God's word speak to us? Does our obedience to God depend on whether God's word agrees with our circumstances? Or do we let God's word have the final say? Do we see God's word as good advice uh, with our finances or our relationships? Who we get to date? Who we marry? How we respond to people that have mistreated us? Who we get to forgive? Is God's word good advice? Or is God's word authority in our lives? This is one of the things that I must just say I so admire about Chris as I've got to work with Chris the last few weeks. Chris has an unquenchable humility and awe before God's Word. Those of us that were there on Friday night, wasn't Friday night a fantastic evening? As we got into God's Word, John's Gospel, Chris and Eric just opened up God's Word for us. I want to encourage you, if you're not in a CG, now's a fantastic time to join one as we go through John's Gospel together. But friends, are we interested in God's Word or do we, are we in awe before it? Do we tremble before the Word of our boss? Do we tremble before social media, what Facebook says about us or Instagram says us? God says, this is the one I look to, those who, who are in awe before my word, who take my word seriously. And the reason why God takes it so seriously is because God's word, his scripture, is not just a means of communicating ideas. God's word isn't just a communication of thoughts or what God likes. In many ways, God's word is an extension of himself. That's why in Hebrews chapter 4, it says God's word is living, it's active, it's sharp, it speaks to the depths of our souls. It, 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 God's word speaks to what's really going on in our hearts, because God's word is almost an extension of himself. And so this is what it means, that it's impossible to break one of God's commands without also almost breaking relationship with God himself. 
this is surprising, but it's actually true of all our relationships. I remember, um, let me be honest with you. When I was a child, I had this problem. Uh, I used to get angry very easily. My grandfather had a problem with anger. My father had a problem with anger. And it somehow got passed on to me. And so I could get angry quickly. And I went and saw some people and said, Some professional people helped me, and it kind of died away. I thought, I've dealt with it. Until my children reached about the age of three, and I found this monster coming out of me again. And there would be times when my blood would boil, and I found myself getting so angry. And it happened around the time my eldest daughter turned three, and this is why it happened. Sometimes I would say to my child, Sierra, don't do that. Do you hear me? only to find a few minutes later her doing that exact thing. Does that sound familiar, or does it only happen in our household? Okay. Or to say, Sierra, please listen to me. I'm asking you to please do this. Do you understand? Only to find her not to do it. And when I found my kids rejecting my words, what made me so frustrated is that I almost took it as a rejection of me, myself. It was almost as if my children were saying, Forget you, Dad. What you think means nothing to me. Which, let's be honest, to a three-year-old is maybe quite close to what was happening, right? But actually, we see this in all of Scripture. When we take God's Word lightly, when we are blasé about God's Word, it's actually because we are blasé about God Himself. We see this in, in Genesis with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve didn't just sin because they ate some forbidden fruit. It wasn't like they just broke you know, rule 6.3 of the rule book. Actually, in, in disobeying God, Adam and Eve were rejecting God's leadership and God's lordship over their life. We see this in, in, in the book of Samuel with King Saul. Remember, King Saul is the first king of Israel. And uh, God told Saul, to go into battle, there's some enemies that are coming to fight them. And he says, go and, and, and defeat their enemies before they defeat you. And so he goes to the Malachites, but God says to Saul, don't bring home any of the spoil of war. Defeat their enemies and then leave everything. Don't bring home any spoil of war. And so what does Saul do? He goes, they defeat their enemy, and then he brings home a whole lot of the spoils of war. And he brings home some of the animals. And uh, Samuel comes to him and says, Saul, what's this bleating of sheep that I can hear? Where do these animals come from? And Saul puts a religious spin on it. He says, oh, um, we thought we'd bring home some animals to worship God. We thought we, we, we'd make a sacrifice and worship God. He puts this religious spin on it. And this is what Samuel says. He says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying his voice? For to obey God is better than many sacrifices. To listen is better than the fat of many rams. For disobedience is the same as witchcraft. You see, the problem wasn't that Saul didn't understand God's word or that he didn't hear it properly. Actually, in his heart, he wanted to be his own God. He wanted to be his own Lord. He wanted to be his own king. And friends, when we don't take God's word seriously, it's because we don't take God seriously himself. When we sit over God's word and judgment of it, it's because we want to maintain the right to be our own king and our own Lord in our lives. But actually, and what it means is as a church, 
as church leaders, as elders, if we use God's word to say what we want to say, if we twist it and manipulate it and, and we, we take it out of context to say things that we wanted to say rather than what God's word really says, actually as leaders we are using God to build our own empire, which in the end will only be a monument to our own futility. And so Watermark, whatever the future of our church looks like, wherever God takes us, Whatever decisions we make into the future, I pray that this will be true of us. May we always, only, and forever be rooted and established and built on the perfect and inerrant Word of God, the authority of God. I pray that more than ever, we will be a church that loves the Scriptures because we love the God of the Scriptures. I pray that Watermark will be a church that submits to the authority of Scripture because we submit to God Himself. May we be a church that is regularly reading and applying God's Word to our lives, spending time in God's Word every day. Maybe as we, as you, before you go to work, get into God's Word. As you wait for the bus at the bus stop, read God's Word. As you're on the bus, be meditating and praying through the Psalms. Maybe in your lunch hour, once a week, take some time and, and go and pray and pray through God's Word. But I pray that we'll be a church that attracts the favor and the blessing of God, because this church is a church that is humble and contrite and trembles before God's word. Fourth thing, the word that rescues and redeems. Now, God's word came to the people of Israel. Came many times, but there was a problem. And the problem was that they didn't receive it. Now, the reason they didn't receive God's word wasn't because they were, you know, dull or a little bit thick or because they weren't very intelligent. That wasn't the reason. The reason that they, they, the problem that they had is the same problem we have. The reason they rejected God's word is the same reason that we reject God's word. And the reason is because their hearts were sick. And the problem is that our hearts are sick. And so prophet after prophet would come and bring them God's word. And some of the prophets... Like Jeremiah, they threw down a cistern or a water well. Isaiah, they sawed in two. They killed him and sawed him in two. Some of the prophets they listened to for a short while, and then even they rejected them and didn't listen to them. And so it wasn't long before the people of God rejected God's word because they rejected the God of the word. And friends, we do the same thing. Almost all the problems in our life is because in some way we don't believe God's word. We think we know better than God's word. It's the reason why there's greed in the world. It's the reason why we have interpersonal relationships, uh, problems with our, our relationships. It's the reason why we don't get on with people. And so problem, uh, the consequences of this are always disastrous. But thank God, that's not the end of the story. And so Isaiah came and brought this message. But Isaiah's message wasn't just a warning. He didn't just warn them. It wasn't just a call to repentance. Actually, Isaiah came and brought some good news. And though the people had rejected God's word, and though God's people had lost their way, God hadn't given up on them. In fact, God was more committed to them than ever. He would rescue them. He would redeem them. And he would do so by sending another word. He had sent them his word and his prophets. They hadn't listened. God was so committed. He said, I'll send you another word. But this time he'd send the ultimate word. This time he'd send the word made flesh. This time he'd send his son. And so the apostle John writes this. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. 
And we have seen his glory. He came full of grace and full of truth. Friends, Jesus Christ is the ultimate word of God, the ultimate revelation of God, the ultimate good news of God. He didn't just come as a prophet. Jesus came to do what no prophet could do. He came, to, he came full of truth. He came to tell us what the truth of God is really like, who God is like. If you want to know what God is like, get to know Jesus. Jesus came full of truth to tell us the reality of who God is and what he's like. But Jesus also came to tell us the truth of our hearts, that our hearts are sinful, that our hearts have lost their way, that our hearts have gone our own way. But Jesus didn't just come full of truth. He also came full of grace. Jesus came to do what no prophet could do. He came to bring us grace. But he didn't just come to tell us about grace. He didn't just come to explain grace. He came to purchase us grace. And he did it, as Chris said earlier, the most costly way anyone could ever do it. He did it by dying on the cross. He did it with his blood. He came to purchase grace for us and to cover our sin with his grace. And so Colossians 3 says this, In him, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, things in heaven and on earth, making peace. How? By the blood of the cross. Friends, Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God, the ultimate word of God, the word of God that rescues and redeems, the word that doesn't just tell us to live better, the word that brings us back to himself and rescues us and restores relationship. Jesus is the word of God that came to save us. If we'll come to him in humility and contrition, humbly in awe and reverence. Watermark. May we be a church built and founded upon this true and better word, upon the living word, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, this is what God says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you'd build for me? Don't you know all these things my hand has made? And so they came to be. But this is the one I will look to. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble before my word. Let's pray together. Can I invite you to stand with me? Let's close our eyes and let's respond to God's word. Friends, how, how will we come to him now? Jesus invites us to come to him, the living word, how do we come to him? Will we come to him in humility, in repentance and confession? Friends, for those of us that have maybe been blasé about God's word, can we repent of that? For those of us that come to God's word as if it's good advice, let's repent of that and Ask Christ to forgive us. Ask him to change our attitude towards his word. For those of us who maybe have sat over God's word, as if we are the final judge of it, can we repent of that? Can we bring ourselves under God's word and say, Father, you have the final say in my life. Maybe some of us come to God intellectually. 
We think of God's Word as a manual. It's a book to analyze. But we don't come to God Himself. Friends, God wants us to come to Him. He wants His Word to breathe life into our souls. He wants to both challenge us and encourage us as we come to His Word. Father, we repent of that. God, we want you. We want to meet with you. We want to love you. God, won't your word speak to us and may we encounter you in your word. God, won't you open the eyes of our heart to see wondrous truths in your word, to see glorious things there that we may encounter you, God. God, won't you make us more like you? As we come to your word, won't you make us more like you? Jesus, we thank you that you are the living word. The word that came not just to tell us what God is like, not just to show us what God is like, but to bring us back to God. Jesus, come and have your way in our life. Come and be first and foremost. Come and be at the center of our lives, we pray. Let's worship this wondrous and majestic God, our King together. Let's worship.